0: Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. We're here every week with a panel of guests from the world of business and beyond to take a look at the numbers that make up the news. This week, our panel comes to you virtually, just as social distancing and a greater effort to flatten the curve of COVID-19 has changed to every other facet of Australian life. But no matter where you are, we'll still be broadcast right across Australia on the community radio network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. As of this morning, Monday the 23rd of March, there have been more than 1,300 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in Australia. As we see across the world, a healthcare system can only be pushed so far. And here, experts are already predicting that a surge in COVID-19 cases could compromise the very model our healthcare system is built upon. On today's show, we're going to take a look at the numbers behind the health crisis and whether our hospitals are able to cope with what experts are describing as an imminent tsunami of cases. Joining me to discuss this by virtual link is our panel of guests. Stephen Duckett is the Health Program Director at the Grattan Institute, as well as the former Secretary of the Australian Health Department, Prabhu Sivabalan, Associate Dean of Engagement at the University of Technology, Sydney, and finally, Professor Rosalie Viney, Professor of Health Economics and Director of the Centre for Health Economics Research and Evaluation at the University of Technology, Sydney. Thank you all for joining me. Stephen, you've said in the past that when a system is under stress, as our healthcare system is now, that cracks start to appear where they may have not been visible before. What are some of the biggest cracks in the Australian healthcare system and how long have they been there?
1: So one of the things we're seeing with the, uh, the response to coronavirus and COVID-19 is that the the way the health system is structured, the very essence of the health system is shaping our response and is limiting our response. And so, for example, uh, we have primary health care is principally primary medical care, principally delivered by general practice, working in independent small general practices in a fee-for-service environment. The fee-for-service environment pays for doctors to do things. Well you then say to yourself, what happens if we don't need doctors to do things? What happens if, for example, nurses can take swabs for testing for the coronavirus? Well, it's hard for us to make a shift from doctors being paid to do everything to, for example, having nurses do things so doctors can concentrate on the more serious issues that they need to do. And so the, the very shape of our healthcare system Uh, is showing that we're not as agile and as quick in responding to the coronavirus as we might be because of these these historical legacies of how we've organised our health system.
0: And is that becoming a realisation the world over, that a lot of healthcare systems that have been touted as being world-class are suddenly, you know, in the cold light of day being found to have some serious inadequacies?
1: Well, I think every healthcare system has its strengths and weaknesses. But, for example, in the UK, in the National Health Service, they got uh, drive-through clinics for testing for coronavirus staffed by nurses up a week ahead of us. And, And at a time when the number of cases doubles every few days... A week is a big time in a disease's history. You've
0: particularly highlighted the Australian healthcare model as being GP-centric, and you've said yourself that this model is just simply unfit to handle a pandemic. Now, you've obviously touched on it in the last few moments, but as a health economist, what strikes you as just fundamentally wrong with this model?
1: Well, as I said, every system has some we- has some strengths and weaknesses, and, you know, if, if, if you're... Um, if, if you want a system which is works well uh, for episodic care, works well when all you have is a simple issue that comes in and comes out, then fee-for-service works well, generally. But if you want a system which looks after people continuously over time, with a, with a person with chronic disease, for example, you want to encourage continuity of care, you want to encourage... The practice that that person is is working with to uh, ring them at home to say, you know, how are things going? And you might want a nurse to do that, for example. Similarly, in an epidemic, you don't need to have everybody fronting up to see a GP. Again, if I use the NHS as an example, uh, the English NHS as an example, they advertised about the coronavirus, do not come to your GP. This is not what you should do. You should ring up this national number uh, to get advice and they would then direct you to these drive-through clinics or whatever. And so a very different model because it wasn't so GP-centric. Now, again, I I don't want to say the English NHS is perfect, but we can see that different countries do things quite differently.
0: The current approach to flattening the curve is going to require us to suppress economic and social activity for at least 12 months. I believe that the Prime Minister's directives on Sunday put a, a time frame of six months at the very least, um, so it could be much longer. Now, obviously, the economic and social costs of this are going to be absolutely enormous. Rosalie, if COVID-19 does indeed put such a strain upon the Australian economy, what are some of the hidden costs in the Australian healthcare system that are going to be... St- worth worrying about in the future?
2: So I think there are, I mean, there are several things that are important here. So first of all, I think just touching on the issues that Stephen raised before, um, there's the question of how our health system will cope with people who already have chronic diseases, who already have um, health problems that need to be dealt with when there's this additional strain on the system. And, indeed, that's a number of things. That's um, the resources, the what can be put off, what can be delayed, what are the implications for people if they have a chronic healthcare problem, if they find it much harder to get out to the GP or to get out to um, seek those medical services. So there are those issues Then I think then the second issue is the question of um, strain in terms of um, uh, anxiety, depression, um, mental health issues resulting from the the more general economic problems and indeed the reduction in social interaction that we're going to see um, as a result of this pandemic. So, So those are two things. And then I think the third thing is we have to start to think and worry about supply chain issues In the health system as well and what the impacts will be as um, we see greater pressure on the system um, in terms of what that's going to do whether our supply chains are going to be adequate across all kinds of things and of course this is not just the matter of um, you know obviously medicines and those sorts of urgent issues but also every aspect of the supply chain that might feed through into what is normal medical practice.
0: We'll get to supply chains a little bit later in the discussion, but I'd, Rosalie, for a second, I'd just like to get you to expand on the concept that you just raised now, that this social isolation of the economic strains, they're going to cause a lot of other health factors, primarily mental health factors. What's going to happen to the hospital system when we have an enormous influx of potential COVID cases, confirmed COVID cases, as well as that normal surge of other medical needs?
2: So I think the thing is that we've got to think more broadly than just what's going to happen to the hospital system. We've got to think about what's going to happen to the health system overall. Um, One of the things, I guess, is that there will be delays in um, elective surgery. I mean, that's already absolutely been at, and is an absolutely um, sensible response to this pandemic. But that does have flow on implications because um, if somebody can't get their hip replaced at the moment and can't for the foreseeable future, that's a, a long-term impact on their health and well-being. It's possibly a long-term impact on what they're able to do, um, just another impact on what they're able to do. Um, it's an impact on um, the extent to which they're likely to suffer pain. Um Obviously, we'd, we would hope that there is not delay in what we might consider non-elective or urgent surgeries, but we will have decisions having to be made about what is urgent, what is elective, etc. cetera, um, that will have those impacts as well. Um, and then I guess inevitably we're going to see that um, hospitals are going to have to rearrange their resources to be able to be ready. You know, you've know, you got to have the capacity um for a, an influx of cases. And that's going to mean pulling people off um, certain areas of the hospital and so that they're available to work in those other areas. Um, and again, that's going to mean that there will be delays and pressures there.
0: Italy is being used as a case study in how COVID-19 can put enormous pressure on an otherwise healthy health system. The latest figures released on Sunday by the Italian Civil Protection Agency, they've showed that the deaths are still largely contained to Italy's richer northern regions, particularly around Lombardy, that particular area has been described as having a world-class healthcare system. Prabhu, what are the financial margins of a world-class healthcare system?
3: Um, Max, that's a very good question. You do find that um, many economies globally operate, uh, to, to follow on from Stephen's point, before uh, about the very nature of of funding and resourcing in the hospital system. Many economies globally operate off uh, an uh, activity-based funding system where, uh, to to keep it simple, we fund healthcare activity publicly based on how much work is done uh, at the uh, patient level. Uh, And the more activity we do, uh, the more hospitals get funded. Now, Theoretically, uh, that funding is is based on costs, um, and uh, but of course, calculating a complex beast <laughs> such as healthcare in all its varieties at a at a macro level for a uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of different regions within that area is, is very difficult. So, um, you know, we often talk about calculating uh, a similar healthcare activity in in one state in Australia being. Different to another state, the structural differences across those states and/or territories. So, you know, to, to answer the question, what are the margins? That that question itself is very difficult to answer because even identifying costs is so hard. Uh, but it's fair to say this. I, I think, without alarming anyone, to to, to sort of give this a, a positive twist. If the real, if the central tenet of your question is, do we have the funds? needed to resource what is required, I think the simple answer to that is governments find a way. Uh, and we know in times of crises, uh, governments source funding from a, 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 a bunch of different sources. Um, we might go to the bond markets to get funds uh, uh, for governments in, uh, who, who have sur- surplus funds, very, very few. Um, we, we, we source from internal. But generally speaking, uh, we find the money uh, to then resource activity accordingly. Um, Of course, the efficacy with which we spend that money is a different matter. But if the purpose of your question is to know, will we have the funds to do it? uh, Absolutely, we will. Um, I will say, though, that uh, what is far more uncertain is, you know, okay, we might have the money, but can we get the necessary material? That, that, that's where the uncertainty creeps in. Uh, we operate in a global environment. Uh, we just saw yesterday uh, or the day before uh, the New York mayor, Andrew Cuomo, talking about the struggles New York is having in sourcing materials. Um, and he was specifically referring to face masks from memory, um, ordering two million face masks. Um, now, if New York is struggling to get stuff, chances are down the track we may have our own struggles. To my best knowledge, given the volume uh, of, of activity relating to the space right now in Australia, not being as high as it is in many other countries, we, we don't face that stress test uh, really as, as acutely. Uh, we, we we won't face that yet. But uh, my, my sense is uh, if this grows exponentially and and doesn't plateau, Uh, and we don't come to the party as a society and align our behaviours accordingly from a social distancing perspective, Um, we we may well could face those issues down the track. Um, How far ahead, no one knows.
0: Confirmed coronavirus cases in Australia, they're growing at a rate around 20 to 25% a day. So there are some projections that there could be between one to two million Australians affected by the end of April. As you've just mentioned, it isn't easy to source a large supply or a large quantity of medical supplies, particularly things like ventilators. In the current model, and also given the fact that most of the confirmed cases are at least five days to a week behind the actual number of cases in in a population, how long, Prabhu, do you think our current supply chains and our current margins could survive?
3: My honest answer to that, Max, is I don't know. Only because we ourselves, uh, in, in in sort of the broader health community, are taking stock of the the, the very supplies we have, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know this this pandemic has come upon us so quickly uh, and and so ubiquitously, you know, so completely that uh, you know folks are uh, trying to figure that out now: how much supply we have, what our reorder points are how much we're able to access, uh, not just nationally, but globally, to then figure out a number. I I know from talking to folks in state health health departments, um, uh, experts themselves are running around trying to figure this out. Uh, uh, That is how quickly things are moving. And whatever number we come up with now might change in a week because the, the rate of growth as extrapolated, may, may not hold, the availability of supplies from overseas or, or, or nationally might might stall or, or might increase. Um, you know, there, there are a whole bunch of uncertainties here that go both ways in the positive or negative. So my honest answer to that is I, I simply don't know.
2: Some of the issues that we have to deal with it, um, are the fact that, we, you know, we've got what we think is a really good health system and an efficient health system in a lot of ways, but that efficiency, if I can go back to your earlier point, it doesn't leave a lot of margin uh, necessarily, and I guess even if we were to throw more funds at it, the issue is it's not just about the money it's about the resources it's about the the nursing that's available it's about the doctors that are available and it's about the equipment and I think the real issue here is of course you know some of that is stuff that is obviously local so our our, our own homegrown resources in terms of the human resources but then in terms of other um, supplies, we're dealing with a, a, an international issue, a pandemic. And so those pressures are going to be across the world. So I think it, it really is a very, a very challenging.
0: On that particular topic, just for a brief moment, I'm assuming that many of these medical supplies, including ventilators, is there an element of uh, producers and manufacturers of these medical supplies may start, even though it does come across as very cynical, essentially putting their products onto the open market?
2: That's a good question. I mean, in some cases, there are matters of guarantees of supply. So certainly in terms of um, uh, pharmaceutical agents in Australia, there's a a requirement for the supplier to guarantee supply um, and to alert the government if they're unable to guarantee supply. But that may not apply as fully across some other areas of medical equipment.
0: So could there be a possibility that there are just enormous price
1: hikes in the next few months we can't assume that uh, there's going to be no world after coronavirus so if i were a, if i were a manufacturer an australian manufacturer who decided to triple the price of ventilators uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks in the assumption that there'd be no impact in 12 months' time, people wouldn't remember that. Uh, I don't think that would be a sensible long-term strategy.
3: And just to back up Stephen's point there, if you look at, for example, what um, Woolworths and Coles are doing now, where they're limiting the sales of products to customers in order to allow for products to distribute more widely uh, amongst a broader cross-section of society. Creating uh, moments uh, during the day for the elderly to shop, so that they may get access to products. Um, you know, I, I completely agree with Stephen. I think companies in this moment in time, um, yeah, there, there is always the chance of price gouging, but folks know that there is. This is as much a you know you, you don't want to be seen twelve months from now, when all, or six months from now, or however long this takes, when this dies down, you don't want to be seen to be a company who was on the wrong side of it in terms of whether you helped address it or you made it harder for folks on the ground. So I, I do think that is, an, there there is an element there of control in that the power of society protects uh, society, if you like, uh, in terms of organisational behaviour. Um, also, one point I will add is... Um, you know, it's amazing. Um, I, I don't want to sound too idealistic here, but it, it's amazing how ingenious um, uh, industries can be when when there is a shortage and a, a, a real need for us to address that shortage. So, for example, there are there are stories coming out of Italy of car makers offering their services uh, to to produce uh, ventilators uh, because the, the foundational core of uh, a lot of their work in in engine production, around air compression, uh, that that logic can be applied to ventilators. And so their factories are surprisingly uh, more suited to making ventilators than one might realise. And they're they're talking to governments about helping. Now, there's a wonderful example of organisations moving outside their core areas in order to help society um, and, and, and effect a social good. So I think... You know, we, uh, as much as price gouging shows the ugly side, um, we we might also see, the good side of a business and it, its possible effects on on you know uh, helping address this crisis.
0: We currently have around two thousand two hundred ICU beds. Now, a statistician by the name of Megan Higgy from James Cook University has estimated that when Australia has around forty four thousand infected patients, all our ICU beds will be full. Now, based on these estimates, Hickey suggests that we could run out of ICU beds in early April. Now, we've been on the discussion about sourcing medical supplies and how companies are more than willing to shift production to allow that to happen. But what is the strategy for dealing with this potential shortage? Because it's a fundamental shortage in the the healthcare system.
2: So some of that, I think, is about... um to what is done now both from the point of view of what happens in society overall but also what happens in the health system around preparation for that possibility in terms of gearing up being able to have alternatives available so icu beds is one thing so being able to work out what the triage options are what are the options for being able to pre- to treat people appropriately um, minimize infection control uh, you know sorry minimize infection transmission etc um in ways that mean that you've got that um that you can build some capacity into the system now so some of it's about that forward planning
0: Mm. Is it difficult to forward plan in the middle of a crisis?
1: Can I say that we've, we, we've got to, first of all, slow the transmission. If, if you think about it, you know, the, the governments around this country are saying, oh, let's try and double the number of ICU beds, uh, which uh, may be feasible, may not be. But bearing in mind the number of infections double every three days or so, doubling the number of ICU beds will only help us for three days I mean it's it's you know it's it's there's a mathematics here that mean that what we have to be doing is slowing the spread of infection and what's happened in Victoria is schools are closed from today it, the, I think the the federal government is to some extent in denial about the the the, the strength of the measures that have to be implemented to to make sure that the health system is not overwhelmed or if it is going to be overwhelmed to delay that, uh, that as long as possible to help us put other strategies inside the health system in place. And is that the
0: current plan to allow for enough time a certain buffer zone to give the healthcare system enough time to shore its defences up before the, the big wave of infections
1: hits? So I think the, the reality is it's the state governments that are at the front line of all of this uh, with the the pressures on their hospitals and the pressures on the ICUs. And so they are the ones that are taking the lead in pursuing much, much stronger isolation measures uh, in terms of, for example, uh, closing schools in Victoria. Uh, and as you say, the, the other strategy has to be what can we do Uh, to try and augment capacity, and that might mean uh, requiring private hospitals uh, to make beds available, for example. It might mean trying to increase the uh, capacity of existing ICUs and special care units in hospitals, and it might mean having to look very carefully at the triage decisions that are being made about going into ICU uh, as well.
0: Uh, and actually, on that point, in this morning's uh, Sydney Morning Herald, Medibank CEO Craig Drummond spoke briefly about the relationship between public and private healthcare in Australia and the possibility that further down the line, private hospitals could be temporarily used for the intake of COVID 19. Now, what are the chances of our private healthcare system being essentially temporarily nationalised? Um, and would that be economically viable? Could it be paid for?
1: I don't think it's, um, I wouldn't use the word nationalised, um, but what I would see happening is that uh, state governments contract ICU beds from private hospitals as they have been doing in the past. There's, any, I think every state has at some stage contracted treatments from the private sector for public patients. And so this is not new. It just might be uh, a bit larger and a bit more focused. The issue is you know to what to what extent will hosp- will private hospitals have choice will private hospitals be required to take a patient who has covid-19 or will they only take be required to take patients who would otherwise be in the ICU for some other reason from the, from the public sector. So only take so-called clean patients. So there are a number of choices that are around. And, and I think over the next uh, week or so, we'll see how they, how they explore.
0: And what do you think could potentially occur?
1: I think it's inevitable that the private ICUs will be used for public, uh, public patients. I think there's no other option for us
0: where do we see our
3: healthcare system in 6 months time from now this this crisis will have a very strong effect in getting uh governments all around the world to resource healthcare uh in ways that they haven't before um and in relation to your point around uh, 6 months from from now max i think where you know for all of us listening out there i think you know we always say sort of you know, you you sort of the the, the effects of local behaviour. I think this pandemic highlights more than any, that that butterfly effect, you know, that if even one person uh, behaves in a way that's misaligned and happens to have the virus when otherwise they may may otherwise think they don't, uh, you know, the effect of that can be catastrophic in in a longer term sense. So, you know, if we want the effects of this virus to be minimised, and we want these broader societal benefits, at an individual level, we really have to partake in that contract we have with our broader society, you know, practice social distancing, follow the advice of government, um, you know, limit contact uh, and, and and our healthcare system, uh, as much as we don't want this crisis, will be all the better for it uh, six months from now.
2: So let me say, I mean... Let's hope that this crisis is well and truly over by then, but it may well not be. I think maybe some of the question is about what are the lessons that we can learn for the health system for the future about what we need in terms of capacity and response, um, how we organise things, um, how we manage things, uh, dealing with things like ensuring that there's substitutability between resources, um, that there is capacity in the system, and I guess... Being aware that uh, an efficient health system is not a health system that is so stretched that it doesn't have the capacity to respond to crises such as these.
1: So, I'm not. I'm. I don't think we can wind back the clock. Uh, certainly, during the Second World War, women went into the workforce, and to some extent, they were first forced out of the workforce at the end of the Second World War. Uh, I think this is not going to be like that i think for example the the idea that consultations can be done by telehealth will become part of the norm and we'll we won't go back to everything being face to face the idea that we can make changes to who does what in the health system is going to probably won't be able to be unwound so i think we've got to think this has caused a shake up in the health system a shake-up for the bad in terms of uh, the pressure on the health system that has occurred, but also a shake-up for the good in what might happen in the long term and what might it open up as policy opportunities.
0: Well, that's about it for today's show. Thank you to Stephen Duckett, Prabhu Sivabalem and Professor Rosalie Viney. Think Business Futures is produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Make sure to catch the full show on your favorite podcast app and don't forget to tell your friends about the good word of the show. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.